Hey guys, this month my church's men's fellowship group took a look at A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Now I'd read this book previously, but it was over a year ago, probably two years ago, and so there were plenty of things that uh, were fruitful upon revisiting it. I wanted to talk about each chapter in this book. It's broken up into, into five parts. Um, if you don't know anything about this book, it is about a praying life. It is full of stories from Paul Miller uh, about his own life, about the lives of people in his church, um, as well as biblical references and practical advice for how to uh, view prayer in a more intimate way, how to pray more often, setting up systems for yourself to make that happen, and to... There's a, there's a lot of content that's just about perspective on prayer, and I think that's why it's such an interesting read. Um, it's broken up into five parts. The last chap, the last part, part five, is uh, mostly about the practical systems um, for accountability in prayer. The rest is more theological conversation and more stories. In the description below, uh, there will be a link to an index for the book as well. Consider this like, um, consider this video. I'm going to do summaries of each chapter, and we're going to talk a little bit about each one. So, consider this something of a study tool or reference or uh, an ad advocation for the book, whereas this index would also be, specifically would be a study tool. So I wrote in the back references to each subject that's mentioned in the book that I found interesting or thought was worthy of note. That's what all these uh, sticky notes are. So at the back of the book and then in the link in the description below um, will be an index referencing each of these notes and highlights that I put throughout the book. So chapter one, if I'm looking at my laptop, that's, well, that's where I'm looking. There's a laptop here, so if I'm not looking at you, uh, then I'm looking either here down at my laptop or at my face on the screen, which is a really bad habit, but I do it a lot because it's, it's distracting because there's this guy moving around on the screen who looks just like me. Anyways, chapter one, uh, our desire to pray comes from creation. Our inability comes from the fall. Knowing the doctrine of sonship and experiencing a personal relationship with God are not the same. Those are the two main points of the first chapter. I figure that's pretty straightforward. So chapter two, it is important to focus on God rather than on prayer itself. Enjoy his presence without an agenda. Do this also with people. Now, Paul Miller says that efficiency kills intimacy, and this is something I have to remind myself of very often, and I think this was one of the hardest-hitting messages in the book for me personally. I can be a very efficient person, but I really struggle with being intimate with people, intimate with tasks, and intimate uh, with God. In the same chapter, he talks about how learning to pray is almost identical to maturing over a lifetime. What he means by that is that there is no uh, specific system or specific, um, you know, there's no checklist for, for developing a praying life. The traits of God inform his answering of prayers. Uh, in the midst of outer busyness, prayer develops inner quiet. So we shouldn't think that our lives are going to quiet down just because we're always praying, but that we can have peace internally in the midst of external chaos. He also, in chapter 2, provides a breakdown of what a praying life includes. So there are five keynotes that he, that he mentions. Uh, the praying life reflects a real relationship, is interconnected with all of life, is filled with tension that leads to hope, is integrated with, not isolated from, struggle, and is inseparable from repentance. In chapter 3, he talks about how Jesus wants us to come to him without pretense. He, he wants us to come to him weary, messy, and broken. Uh, nothing exposes our selfishness and powerlessness. Like prayer, we're giving up that control, that independence. 
Um, it's important to give God the real you, to be completely honest, to being willing to show your brokenness to God and ask him for forgiveness. Um, and it also includes an encouraging reminder to be wrapped up in God's kingdom and not your own. So actively thinking through your motivations for what you're doing in life and whether they align with God's uh, with God's spoken will in his word, right? Uh, or what you believe is God's will for your life based on how he's revealed himself to you through the events of your life, as opposed to working um, for motivations and towards goals that are explicitly self-centered. In chapter four, um, there's an encouraging reminder that God sees all of our requests with love, right? Those of you who have kids, if, even if your kid asks you for something ridiculous, you, you don't respond immediately with hatred in your heart, right? You, they might be confused, might even be a little bit funny that they think that they need a, a, a pony or 6,000 pancakes or whatever it is they're requesting. Um, but it, but it's almost entertaining when they ask for things like that and you can still respond with love and our father does the same thing. On that same note, uh, when a child asks you for something they believe that you're going to eventually say yes. That's why they keep pestering you. We have to believe that God will eventually answer our prayers, even if he hasn't already. We have to, chapter four is all about coming to ask like little children. Um, on the same note, don't let embarrassment about your prayer keep you from praying. Um, we shouldn't, I, if we take the mundane things in life and consider them mundane, right, then we're, we're less likely to pray for them. But if we take the mundane things of life and before we can even make them smaller than they are, we give them to God, right? We don't spruce them up with fancy language because then it feels even less genuine. But say you lose your keys, you, you, can, you can just tell God, please, God, help me find my keys. You know, uh, you can say it right then and there, plainly, and he will hear you. And that's incredible. And we shouldn't take that for granted. And we shouldn't let ourselves forget that that's the case. Uh, chapter four also includes an encouraging reminder that Christ's spirit is praying in your heart all the time. So you don't need to dress up your prayers because Christ dresses them up for you. He's the mediator, right? If you lose your keys and you're praying, please, God, let me find my keys. I don't know what, how Christ is wording that to the father, but he's, he's, he's making it pleasing, right? Chapter five, Jesus acknowledges complete dependence on the Father and defines himself only in relationship with the Father. And this is something that is part of him being the perfect example, being the perfect man. Uh, Jesus has no ego independent of his relationship with the Father. This is the, actually the chapter where Paul Miller also says that efficiency kills intimacy, even though he touches on the concept earlier. Um, he also suggests that if you are not praying, my note says, is you are not praying because I can't type apparently, your trust is in yourself. So if you're not giving things up to God, you're harboring them around yourself. Your trust is either in yourself or in the world. And guess what? World's broken. You're also broken. So <clears throat> not a very good idea. Chapter six talks about how prayer mirrors the gospel talks about how spiritually mature Christians feel less spiritually mature and see more sin in their hearts as a uh, Christian fetus, essentially. I would say that that's, that that's true. Everything I do without Jesus becomes nothing. That is a note I wrote to myself. Uh, Paul Miller words it, you know, every, everything that you do without Jesus becomes nothing. But I needed to write that as everything I do without Jesus becomes nothing because there are plenty of little things in my life that I do completely separate from uh you know, the, the religious activities of my life, but that need to be more integrated into my faith. Suffering is God's gift to show us what life is really like. And later in the book, Paul also talks about how suffering is God's gift to make us more dependent on him. 
In chapter 7, um, he talks about how simple prayers take pressure away because we don't need to sort out our needs. In, you know, in, in in-depth prayer times, uh, it's important to reflect on your wants, your desires, your needs. And like that's one of the beautiful things about prayer is you can reflect and say, man, would that really be good for me? Before you ask God for it, because when you say it out loud, sometimes things just seem silly. You know, things, or, or you realize as you're praying to God for something that that can't be God's will for your life because that's not God's will for anyone's life or, or specifically for your situation. Um, but praying simple things take away that pressure. Poverty of spirit makes room for his spirit. So if you're feeling low, you, you know that as a Christian, you don't have to be dependent on raising your own spirits because his spirit's already been raised eternally and you can confide in that. Chapter eight, anxiety is the self standing alone. So anxiety comes from feeling like you don't have control, but you don't need control and control is an illusion anyways because you can't have it because God's in control. Yeah. I don't know why I made that noise, but that's, that's how I respond. I have to argue with myself a lot about that. So that's why I made that noise. Prayer is the mists, pray in the midst of chaos. So as we talked a little bit about earlier, like your life doesn't have to be peaceful on the outside for God to give you peace on the inside. Uh, so stop trying to control your life. That's another note I just put to myself. Chapter nine, we should seek out good, not evil. So if you're seeking out evil in the world, constantly trying to unmask it, you're only going to enlarge evil. You should see others with an eye for Jesus working in them. Look for the good in the world. People will, evil will reveal itself. Look for the good in the world. Cynicism creates numbness and naive optimism leads to cynicism. So recently uh, my bike was stolen and I was not trusting in God that it wasn't going to get stolen. I was putting my Lord to the test, so to speak. I didn't have a bike lock. It was a nice antique bike that I had been fixing up for a couple of years. And I would just sit it out with no lock, naively optimistic that it wouldn't get stolen. And then it got stolen. And what I could have done is become cynical. Like, man, everyone's a bike thief. Bikes get stolen. What's even the point of having a bike? This, wor this world is broken and that's a fact. So bikes get stolen. Um, and that's, that, that's numbness, right? That's, that's not how I should feel about something of mine being stolen. The brokenness of the world should break our hearts a little bit. Like I should be upset that someone would steal a bike, but still trust that God is in control. That's a weird, small example. But chapter 10, having faith in God while living in a broken world looks like cautious optimism, right? So we're thankful and watchful at the same time. Um, thankfulness undercuts cynicism so being genuinely thankful for all the little things in your world and being showing gratitude to god for every little positive thing uh, undercuts that cynicism that numbness of like man what's the point of any of this adding judgment to hypocrisy breeds cynicism on the other hand so i'm really bad about this if i am struggling with doubt not in a good place with my faith and i see a bunch of people and i'm worshiping with a group of people i start looking around thinking you know, not only am I thinking that my heart's not in it, but I'm assuming their heart isn't in it either, that they're putting up some kind of front or something, which absolutely is probably not the case at all. It just makes you more cynical. All sin involves a splitting of self. Repentance reconciles the split. So anytime, like sin always involves a kind of hiding away, you know, like we don't want the world, we don't want our friends and our family to see our sin. We don't want God to see our sin, but repenting, uh, confessing to God and to other um, brothers and sisters reconciles that split. Chapter 10, this is one of my favorite chapters, honestly, for all that it covers. Chapter 10 also suggests that we should try to see through ourselves and not the world. So rather than constantly thinking about how the world is cheating you or might be lying to you, think about how you might be cheating others or yourself or lying to others or lying to yourself. I struggle with that a lot. It's easy to assume that like 
you know, we, we, are, we are good people living in a broken world. Like, no, we are broken people living in a broken world and we need to look at ourselves first. Chapter 11, view others with an eye for Jesus working in them. We talked about that already. And the raw material of believers is likely worse than that of unbelievers. So that's parts one and two, chapters one through 11. Now we're going to look at part three, summaries of chapters 12 through 18. So in chapter 12, Miller talks about how religion is woven into the social fabric of the world. Uh, talks about how Christianity gave us science, how prayer feels phony when it has already been defined as phony. So if you're praying and then in your mind somewhere you're saying, man, this isn't going to work, or man, um, or, or, or if you, you pray for something that happens and then you thought is, man, this would have happened anyways, then your prayer time isn't going to feel genuine. The heart is naturally sure of a creator. We have to convince ourselves uh, and argue ourselves into corners um, when, we're, when we're shying away from that fact. Chapter 13, learned desperation is the key. So understanding that we are completely dependent on God um, is the key to meaningful prayer. Uh, also talks about how the Lord is infinite and personal. We fear the personal side of God because we are vulnerable and ashamed. Chapter 14, asking for what you want or need is not wrong. Um, Jesus was not completely separated from his passions, right? He was a passionate guy. Jesus was not a stoic. Uh, we can express our feelings without letting them master us. And in fact, expressing our feelings to God and to other people is the only way that we can keep them from mastering us. At least that's my opinion. Like if I keep my desires and wants pent up, then they're only going to eventually take control. Suffering is a gift to make us know our dependence. We talked about that a little bit earlier. And the closer something is to God, the harder it is to measure. So things like love and truth and hopefulness and trust are are like, like, and faithfulness are attributes of God and are so closely related to him that we can't quantify them. Chapter 15, wait, real quick, uh, and I couldn't explain this well during men's fellowship time, but um, it's, it's like God is a, a black hole, like how space and time kind of warp around a black hole. Time starts to slow down and space curves a little bit. Um, at least I think that's how that works. It's like the same thing with, with, with God, but with uh, things that are close to him because they are attributes of him. Chapter 15, two, the two dangers in asking are not asking and asking selfishly. Paul Miller has a really helpful diagram um, that explains how we can kind of weave between those two. God understands our needs completely. Never forget that. And in order to ask, you have to reflect on your wants and needs. And we talked about that a little bit already. Chapter 16, we act selfishly all the time, but fear talking selfishly because we sound ridiculous when we talk selfishly. Uh, we need to ask heart questions, not just practical questions as we reflect. He talks about the example of a vacation home, um, like not just, uh, you know, if, if, if it's your will, do I have enough, or asking about the financial questions, like do we have enough money for this? Um, would you provide for this? But would it be good for my heart to have a vacation home? I, right now, it would not be good for my heart at all. Um, we are designed to hear from God, and God gives commands, not advice. I think that's important to remember. Jesus isn't like this little dude on your shoulder, you know, saying, maybe you should do this. Like, no. When Jesus tells you to do something, whether it's in his word or in your heart, if it's Jesus, you, you do it, right? Chapter 17, we can't battle evil without letting God destroy our evil. And this is super convicting because there have been so many examples of this recently in my life where I've been praying for God to remove some evil aspect of the world. And instead he comes in and takes something in my heart and completely convicts me of it and then demands that I eradicate it. And it's so hard because we want to cling to that. But that evil makes my life so much easier. It's so convenient. Ah. Uh, it, it's, it's hilarious how we cling to such broken things. We cling to things that come from a world that hates us rather than the things to, that come from a father that loves us. 
Um, and then idolizing emotions is also something that's talked about in chapter 17. Uh, idolizing our emotions makes us ruled by ever-changing wind, right? If I'm angry and that's the end of it and I have a right to be angry, um, or I'm sad and that's the end of it and I have a right to be sad. No, we don't have the right to anything. Chapter 18, we have to discern and disown our own wills in favor of the Lord's. Um, there's also a diagram that Paul Miller, he, he uses so many cool diagrams. You have to read the book, man. He talks about how Jesus closes doors that don't lead to prayer. Hang on, I need to wipe my nose. I didn't want to do that on camera, sorry. <laughs> Jesus closes doors that don't lead to prayer. So he will take elements of pride in your life, of selfishness in your life, and close those opportunities by convicting you of the wrongs that you're committing through those doors so that you're locked in a room and the only door open is one that leads to dependence on him. Self-will is self-centered, prayer is God-centered, and God is the fortress. Now what that means is that the, we were told that the Lord will give us a fortress. It's not that he's giving us some fortress outside of him or separate from him. He is our security, he is our shelter, he is our fortress, he is our beauty. Part four, chapters 19 through 27. Uh, chapter 19, sin compounds over time. Paul Miller uses the example of a ship that is just a little bit off on its course, but then it keeps going and gets further and further away from the path it's supposed to be on. Frugality is a form of the love of money. That's convicting for me. <laughs> and we must face reality uh, with hope. So it's easy to you know, deny reality and be in denial and keep on hoping or to stop hoping and just despair in reality. Um, but th we, we live and walk in the desert, right? And we're supposed to face that desert with hope, but still accept that we're in the desert. <laughs> Chapter 20, uh, God uses the weak things of this world to weave his stories, of course. Chapter 21, we cannot close the gap between hope and reality. We cannot close that desert ourselves. The suffering that takes place there burns away the false selves created by cynicism or pride or lust or whatever your struggle is. Uh, the split personality thing, it's easy for the, um, the, 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 the sinful uh, secret you to become so big or, or for there to be so many of them in different categories. But suffering burns those away as we turn in repentance to our Lord. Uh, God's presence discovered in the desert that we were just talking about can become a well inside your own heart. Thankfulness helps us to see God's past blessings while watchfulness alerts us to God's present working. So it's important to not only be thankful for all the things that God has blessed you with so far, but to be watchful in how he's weaving your story right now and what you might have to be thankful for in the future because there is so much. Chapter 22 is all about laments. Laments bring together reality and promise. Um, the bleakness of the desert emboldens the lament and the brokenness of the world should break our hearts, and we talked about that a little bit earlier, but more on the, the laments aspect of the chapter. Laments feel messy and sometimes feel like you're being rude to God, and Paul Miller talks about that. And the reason they feel that way is because you're taking God by, by the garment and saying, hey, you promised me this. Why isn't it happening yet? Because that's the thing, is that it's, it might not be happening yet, or it might be happening in ways that you don't understand, but you're not going to realize that in your heart unless you turn to God and be honest and be open. We talked already about being real with God, coming weary and messy. It's also important to be honest when you're angry with God. It's okay to tell him that. It really, really, really is. Chapter 23, the Greeks accepted chaos while the Jews brought chaos to God and they're lamenting. Uh, 
Paul Miller talks about how the Greeks had their tragedies and they had their comedies. Comedies were comedies because they were completely separate from life and tragedies were tragedies because they were reflected life. The Greeks accepted that life had its problems and just accepted the world as a broken place and that no one could change it. The Jews brought chaos to God. They brought the brokenness of the world to God and said, why is it this way, Lord? It's not supposed to be and we know it. We know you didn't make it to be this way. Um, a lament as we said, it brings together reality and promise. This chapter expounds more upon how it brings God's past promise into connection with our present chaos and hoping for a better future. I'm going to say that again because I think it's really helpful. A lament connects God's past promise with my present chaos, hoping for a better future. A lament is faith, while a complaint is rebellion. So the Israelites complaining to Moses in the desert is very different than um, Jesus quoting laments on the cross. To expound upon that, or expand upon that a little bit more. When you're lamenting to God, you are saying, here, this is in your word, these are your promises, and it's not this way. And I have faith that it can be, and I have faith and trust in you. But I'm letting you know, God, I'm upset. You're not complaining and cynically turning away. You know, you're not saying the world is broken, so I'm just going to completely cut myself out of the picture. You're saying the world is broken, and I'm upset about it, God. And, and I need you to do something. And like I said, it's completely fine to come to God that way. Um, chapter 24, Jesus' ambiguity, the Lord's ambiguity, creates the space to reveal us both, not just to reveal him, but to reveal ourselves to ourselves uh, so that we can see our place in his story more clearly. Chapter 24 also talks about how faith and relationship are interwoven into a dance. Chapter 25 the praying life is inseparable from obeying, loving, waiting, and suffering. And Paul Miller's personal stories talk they, they, uh, they exemplify, exemplify? No, they are an, maybe, no. They are an example of this. If, if exemplify means to be an example of something, then I apologize, but I think it's to lift something up, so I don't think that that would be the right word. Um, the praying life is inseparable from obeying, loving, waiting, and suffering. And Paul Miller gives so many examples of himself falling short. Uh, he doesn't put himself up on a pedestal as if he's living the, a praying life, and it's perfect, and he's riding on the clouds, and you can too. It's not like that at all. Um, chapter 27, we're going to talk about chapter 26, chapter 27 expands upon that more. Chapter 26 talks about how prayer fills the space between hope and reality, that desert we were talking about earlier, with wonder. Wonder at what God is doing in your life and can do in your life in the future. Chapter 27, the kingdom coming in this life often looks low and or like a mistake. Um, Chapter 25, the prayer, praying life is inseparable from obeying, loving, waiting, and suffering. We need to be able to recognize how God is working in our lives while we're doing those things. That's the kingdom coming on earth, and it's easy for us not to recognize it because the kingdom is us serving each other. At least in this life, that's all, that's all it needs to look like is, is servitude. It's, it's, it's meeting people where they're at and meeting yourself where you're at because that's what Jesus did. Loving genuinely is a reenactment of Jesus' death. It's complete self-sacrifice for, for another person. Uh, living in a gospel story exposes our idols. Repentance creates integrity. And all of life is organized around invisible bonds or covenants that knit us together. I needed to write that down for myself. All of life is organized around invisible bonds or covenants that knit us together. Your sin, and I forget this, your sin does not just impact you, but impacts everybody. When you bring more evil into the world, when I bring more evil into the world, it impacts everybody because now there's just a little bit more evil than there was yesterday and the world does not need any more of that garbage. So part five is kind of the practical chapter. 
uh, but it opens by saying that systems can desensitize us to God as a person in chapter 28. But chapter 29 is about how prayer cards can be uh, more intimate than prayer lists and less scattered, how big prayers help you dream impossible dreams, and how we ought to seize Jesus's garment, not the day. Because if you seize the day, like I sometimes do, then it will break you, and you will only be reminded of your dependence on God, not that it's a bad thing. Chapter 30, the essence of ministry is sharing in each other's sufferings. Chapter 31, seeing God in our lives, creations, other Christians, and the word keeps us from elevating our thoughts to a unique status. You ought not use the Lord as a cover for your own desires, of course, but it's so easy to do. The counsel from God is inseparable from a humble heart seeking after him. Chapter 32, Make not provision for the flesh. And he also talks about how uh, the novel is a Christian invention. As far as make not provision for the flesh, I want to talk about that a second because personally, it's really easy for me to say, oh, well, I've been very obedient the past week. I deserve a little bit of sin as if there's any real joy in that, right? As um, my, I was telling one of my friends about that and he reminded me that John Piper calls sins killjoys. And I thought that was a, that was a really helpful, that was a really helpful term. Chapter 33, we cannot love one another without prayer. Chapter 34, everyone dies with unfinished stories. But that's just a humbling reminder that we are a very small part of God's very, very big story. Um, God used Israel's captivity to prepare for the coming of his son and the birth of the church. And the last note in this chapter is that living in unfinished stories draws us into God's final act, the return of Jesus. Now I'm going to read the last page of the book to you because I think it's awesome. Give me one second. Some stories aren't tied up until heaven because of Kim, Paul's wife, Jill, Paul's, or sorry, because of Kim, Paul's daughter, Jill, Paul's wife, longs for heaven. The desire permeates her conversation. Jill doesn't say, it's a beautiful day outside. She says, this would be a good day for Jesus to come back because everyone can see him. Living in unfinished stories draws us into God's final act, the return of Jesus. While we wait for his return, it is easy to predict the pattern of the last days. The book of Revelation pictures a suffering church dying as creation itself is unraveling. Through suffering, God will finally make his church beautiful and reveal his glory. In the desert, you see his glory. In the last days, the bride will be made beautiful, pure, waiting for her lover. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So I hope this was helpful. I hope this makes you want to read the book if you haven't already. I hope it's a helpful review tool if you are reading or have read the book. Like I said, the index that I created for this will be in the description below. It's just a Google Doc, so you'll have to have like a Google account to see it, I think. Maybe not. I don't know. But if you have YouTube, you probably have Google. So there you go. Have a wonderful day.